Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation, Global Rights for Women, is presented by Cheryl Thomas. It was recorded via Zoom at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Lawrence on April 2nd, 2023. Good morning. As Professor Brene Brown has said, the willingness to show up changes us. It makes us a little braver each time. I'm delighted to introduce you to Global Rights for Women here and after GRW and the brave founder, Cheryl Thomas, who generously agreed to join us from her home in Minnesota. And I think it's like freezing rain there right now. GRW hit my radar when a dear Iowa friend, Becky, mentioned it to me three or four years ago. And her evocative sharing of vignettes about this lean, effective machine operating from a flyover state with global impact piqued my interest. And she didn't overdo it you know, like drip, 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 that was persistent in her sense that I might get on board. Over time, her comments landed in my head and my heart, and I joined Iowa Advocates for GRW. We worked together to host a successful in-person fund and friend raiser in Des Moines about a year ago and I continue outreach efforts as opportunities arise, like this morning. You never know when the right words at the right time might have influence, right? And as I've said, it's rare to witness shores reached by the ripple effects of targeted and timely dedicated work. GRW steers lives and communities in the right direction towards shores, that support nonviolent, sustainable, systemic change. And I wanna thank Lynn Anderson, the board chair of GRW for the following words that give a bit more information before I turn the program over to Cheryl. At GRW, we believe women and girls have the right to live free from violence. At least one in three experience violence in her lifetime. Our mission is laser focused on ending violence against women and girls through effective legal reform and justice system changes. We work at the invitation and request of in-country organizations to improve the laws and systems in their country tailored to their specific needs and centered on survivors. We have worked in over 60 countries. Cheryl Thomas, our founder, leader, and international women's human rights lawyer is widely acclaimed and of her many accolades. In 2011, Newsweek named her one of 150 women who shake the world. In 2021, she received the prestigious Arabella Babb Mansfield Award from the National Association of Women Lawyers. 
Cheryl's recognized by the United Nations as a global expert and works closely with United Nations women. And most recently, she received the AARP 50 Over 50 Award for making a positive impact in the world. Since 1993, Cheryl has been advocating that violence against women and girls is a human rights violation. She shines a spotlight on these human rights violations happening to women every day in every country in the world. I've never met anyone as passionate and tenacious. Please welcome Cheryl direct from Minnesota. Well, Margot, thank you so much for that warm introduction and, and for your work and your um, just enthusiasm about global rights for women. I'm, I'm honored to have it and I'm honored to be here um, with you all uh, this morning on Palm Sunday at, at the Uni um, Unitarian Universalist Church in Lawrence. So again, thank you so much for having me. So I, I thought I would start by just giving you a a little background about global rights for women and our mission and our founding. And then I will talk a little bit about kind of what, what inspired us a little bit more in depth and then how we do our work and, and why we focus on uh, legal system and systemic reform to end uh, what we believe is the most prevalent human rights violation in the world. And that is gender-based violence against women and girls. So we were founded in 2014, and as Margot said, right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a group of about 40 of us actually got together and decided that there really was a gap in what was happening in the world to end violence against women and girls, and we created this organization around this mission. Um, so I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about our, our founding in 2014. We were founded with the idea that um, violence against women is the most prevalent human rights violation in the world. It affects half the population. And there is so much need for systemic and legal reform on this issue. And we knew here in the United States, and particularly in the Midwest, in Minnesota, that there was expertise um, that we could share and that started with some requests um, over the years from, from women's human rights advocates in other countries about how do we create systems and legal systems and community systems and that can effectively address uh, violence against women. So we're not, we don't do shelter work, for example, at Global Rights for Women. We don't do hotlines, that kind of services. We work on systemic and legal change um, to so that when our communities are intervening in what is mostly private acts of violence that affect women and girls, that it's effective, that it takes into account all these dynamics that are so, um, so unique when women and girls are experiencing these, this, these acts of violence by people they know, their husbands, their boyfriends, maybe it's someone at work. We know that the most common forms of violence against women and, uh, and girls are um, domestic violence and sexual assault. And that's true globally throughout the world. So um, those are the forms that we, we focus on and the techniques that have been developed in in Minnesota, in the Midwest, and around the world 
are are unique, you know, to those particular um, those particular forms of violence. Uh, so, I uh, just share with you first of all a few statistics, and then, like I say, I'll I'll just dig a little deeper into the um, uh, the the kind of the way we do our our work. Um, the advantages of global partnerships, how they they can really work to um, make change. Um, and then I would really like to spend a fair amount of time um, on questions. And I understand that that we have until about about 20 minutes for me to present and then questions. Does that sound okay? So what we know about, uh, this global pandemic of gender-based violence against women and girls is that one in three women and girls will experience domestic or sexual violence in their lifetime. And that's a global statistic from the World Health Organization. It's reflected in uh, statistics, very similar statistics country to country around the world. And it, it it's 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 alarming, uh, and our United Nations officials are, as I mentioned, are now calling this the human rights violation of our time, a pandemic of of global proportions. That was not true, you know. When I started this work in 1993, um, that I was working uh, it, at I had before we founded Global Rights for Women in 2014. I had been working at other organizations doing similar work. And in 1993, when I started this work, the United Nations had not recognized women's rights as human rights or violence against women as a human rights violation. So you think about that, that's 30 years ago. This has been a thrilling development while I've been doing this work, uh, but it's also you know, kind of hard to grasp that even that in that recent of a time that we weren't using our United Nations, our global human rights instruments, the treaties that reflect human rights to address this, this pandemic that affects um, half the population. Uh, as another statistic I'll just share with you that continues to just um, focus me on this issue, certainly, and I know um, others really find this valuable also, is that uh, the United Nations Office in Drugs and Crime did a really in-depth study uh, in 2018 about the global prevalence of domestic and sexual violence and uh, created a report that concluded that um, over 50,000 women and girls per year die at the hands of family members. That's 137 every single day. So when you think about those statistics and that, that those aren't the injuries, you know, those are the, the women and girls who died at the hands of family members. And those are mostly men, so 50,000 women and girls per year. I always want to just kind of stop and, and uh, kind of take note of that just overwhelming kind of inconceivable figure. Really. <clears throat> I was reading, for example, uh, last night, I was doing a little um, research in, in Kansas there, the Kansas <clears throat> Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Some of you may be familiar with that. I saw on your social justice um, page on your website that 
there are some violence against women organizations that you all devote time and energy to and maybe money from the church. But in 2021, the Kansas Coalition documented that over 70,000 victims of sexual and domestic violence received services through the network of 25 gender-based violence organizations in Kansas. So that just gives you an idea of the scope of this problem. And it's our view, and this is why we founded Global Rights for Women, is that we can't go forward in our world in a healthy and productive way with this magnitude of human rights violations against half our population in the world. So we saw this, like I say, this, this niche for our organization to really help build the capacity of organizations. We do work here locally in Minnesota, in addition to working uh, mostly in other countries, but to build the capacity of the stakeholders in the community and with a, with a focus on, on the legal system professionals, the criminal justice system, the civil justice system, probation, to intervene in these cases, to disrupt the power imbalance that is so prevalent around the world between men and women. One of the special rapporteurs on violence against women at the United Nations, that's a person that's uh, appointed by the Human Rights Council, um, spoke about this issue as uh, the norm is impunity. The norm for violence against women around the world is impunity. It's lack of accountability. And that's a powerful motivation for us to improve our justice system's response to this violence. Uh, we were do we're in the midst of doing a report here in Minneapolis with our, our very troubled police, department here on the response to domestic and sexual violence here. And one of one of the victims that we, the survivors that we talked to as we did this report um, stated that, uh, you know, she, she, she felt that she has the right to call the police when her intimate partner assaulted her or when he violates the order for protection. Uh, we quoted her in our report, I, I, I should have the right to call the police, even with all the problems with the police that we have here in Minneapolis and with the police around the world, truly, as I've seen throughout my, my work, women feel and embrace their human right to safety and their human right to access justice and accountability when they are assaulted and terrorized and um, abused in their own homes. So that's just a little bit about kind of what drove us to, um, to create uh, Global Rights for Women and what um, drives us still today. And as I said, we uh, do our work here locally in Minnesota and around the world. When we work with partners from other countries, we work only at their invitation. So um, for example, I just returned from the Caucasus. Uh, some of you may know that part of the world. That's Armenia. The South Caucasus are Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. And, you know, they right on the border of Russia. But if you picture kind of the Balkans and Bulgaria, Greece is kind of south of Bulgaria, and then the Black Sea is there 
on the east coast of uh, Bulgaria, and then right across the Black Sea are the Caucasus, Georgia. Armenia doesn't have a coastline, um, but Georgia does, Azerbaijan, and like I say, the mountains there. So I just returned from there, and I spent two weeks there. This particular visit was an invitation from the local U.S. embassies. So that's one way we often do our work is when we have um, the embassies call on us as experts to, for example, train police or speak to prosecutors or um, bring a judge along to talk about how orders are, for protection are issued. If a law in, the, uh, in that country has just been passed, for example, to provide women a new order for protection remedy. But also in this, um, these two countries, Armenia and Georgia, Global Rights for Women has worked for many years with a number of partners, but always at the invitation, whether it's a local nonprofit organization, our longest term partner in the Republic of Georgia is, a, is the, it's called uh, the Anti-Violence Network of Georgia, which is the first shelter that opened in that country. And that opened in the early 2000s, about 2002. And um, that's very common. That's the first step countries often take is to open a shelter when they realize the when they, when they're when there's enough energy to finally start to do something about this kind of violence in the home. That's often the the first step that's taken. And then just as here in in Minnesota, we opened our first shelter in 1970. Two in St. Paul, Minnesota, one of the first shelters in the world. Some say the first shelter in the world, but it, it filled up immediately with victims of of private violence, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Sexual assault is mostly um, perpetrated by men that women know, not stranger assaults. But we op open our our shelter then in 1972, and then soon after that, we went to the legislature for laws. We wanted a criminal law that would allow police to intervene in domestic and sexual violence effectively in a way that didn't shame or blame victims, but to craft this new language in our criminal and civil codes that would give women these remedies was what we did. And we see that being kind of replicated around the world. First, there's the shelters and the service centers, and then people see, see that they can't open enough shelters in the world to, uh, to house all of the women and girls that um, are survivors of this violence. So we you, people gradually see a need to do this kind of systemic change with law and policy and, and practice with stakeholders who, again, in the community that have the power to keep women safe and hold vendors accountable. So I, I, law, I think, has a number of, of you know, just um, it has a power that not uh, that, that is unique in our community systems. It it's, makes a statement about um, how, what, what behavior we will and will not tolerate. Um, again, it, uh, it, when it's effectively enforced, that's all for the next step once you get the law on the books. Now actually Global Rights for Women is working mostly to build capacity of police uh, prosecutors, judges, probation, advocates to enforce that law effectively. 
And then that gives women some space when you can, for example, a judge can issue an order for protection or a criminal justice person can detain a dangerous offender. That gives some reality to that language of the law, some some concrete remedies that can um, keep a woman and her children safe. Um, And that it also has the power to do things like Funding for shelters, funding for hotlines, funding for social services, funding for legal aid uh, to victims of violence. So we as lawyers really value uh, that power of the law, but also recognize that the law is certainly you know, not, not sufficient in itself. There has to be kind of a community tr- transformation, community uh, kind of realization that this violence is a human rights violation, that women do have the right to be free from it, and that uh, we have the responsibility to address it. Um, So I'll just say a few more things, maybe talk for just a few more minutes and then see if anybody has questions or comments. And I, obviously you can see that I could keep talking as long as people will listen about our work. And um, uh, would just love, you know, to have some dialogue with you. That's always way more interesting, I think. So um, we have worked in over 60 countries since our founding. Um, As I mentioned, uh, the caucuses have been one, one focal point of our work. We helped both Armenia and Georgia draft their first laws on domestic violence. We've done lots of work throughout the former Soviet Union. When I first started this work, as I mentioned in 1993, the post-Soviet states, I consider that 29 countries kind of in um, Central Central Asia, Caucasus, the Baltics, the Balkans, Central and Eastern Europe, none of those countries had domestic violence laws in 1993. Um, We work there. We also work now uh, with a lot at the invitation of the United Nations in about 10 years ago, the United Nations created, kind of consolidated all the agencies within there uh, that did work on women's human rights into one agency, UN Women, to really focus on violence against women. And we do a, have a lot of contracts with, over the years since 2014 with the United Nations to, again, to build the capacity of systems and um, legal professionals to address this violence. We have a we have a team going to the Philippines next month, and we will be working with advocates there to um, to implement a methodology that we have found particularly effective in the in addressing the failure to enforce laws. And uh, we'll have that that project is actually a two year project or three years, a two and a half year, three year project. So um, we have more invitations than we can respond to. Our uh, staff is small, but as Margo said, lean and very strong and very uh, just with decades of experience in these areas. So as the world kind of, you know, opens its its eyes to this uh, global pandemic, we're called on more and more and more to for real concrete effective tools that have worked in the US and in other countries to address this. So why don't I um why don't I open it up for questions and discussion? Cheryl, it's Margot. 
Marco. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us this morning. Uh, just know how much I appreciate you. Thank you, Margo. I really yeah. appreciate it. So good to see you. Yeah, so good um, to see And I do have a, a, a couple of questions. Yes. Um, the first being, okay, so I'm somewhere in the world and I'm recognizing in my community, in my country that, that we need, we have a problem. Um, how do I find my way to you? That would be question number one. And two would be, you mentioned having more requests than you can respond to. How do you prioritize those mm. yes. responses? And great thanks question. again. Yes, great questions. Um, so the the answer to the first question is we prioritize them. We kind of have developed this, this system. Our mission is very focused we're focused on legal and systemic reform. So if somebody, for example, in Uganda says, I found you online, or my colleague from Tanzania mentioned, told me about your work, um, we would like to start an awareness campaign here in Uganda. We would That would not be a priority because that is not our area, our kind of our area of expertise and our area of focus in our mission, okay? Let me give you another example. Uh, we have a colleague in Tanzania who we've worked with here in Minnesota. She was a fellow at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute, and she's gone back to Tanzania now, and she works with a legal aid organization who has a particular focus on women's human rights. Now, they have a new president, not new, but uh, this woman president in Tanzania is very interested in getting the first Comprehensive Violence Against Women Act passed in Tanzania. So they have a draft that was drafted years ago. Um, we, she asked us for our help in reviewing this draft and making comments on, this is a strong provision. This provision might present problems for you. You know, this provision might have unintended consequences for victims. So we did a long commentary on that. I engaged judges from our community here, one judge in particular and a law student who are working with me on this commentary and who have expertise in drafting laws on, on, on violence against women. Now, she would love for us to come over there and present to the working group who's going to be uh, refining this law and presenting it to parliament. We don't have funding for that. Okay. So um, that's a project that that I continue to try to help this organization that Christina Ruhenda is her name works with, but I can't prioritize it. For example, when I have a deadline for one of our, our UN projects, you know, so we do what we can when somebody asks us for something like that request, which is so clearly within our expertise, within our mission, but we also need to have funding to do that. So those are two of the big, uh, the, the priority elements, funding right within our mission. The other one, I work with a number of our partners as best I can, and so do other staff um, from longtime partners. For example, these, these groups in Armenia and Georgia. Also, we uh, Bulgaria is another country we've worked with since our inception. Latvia, Lithuania. Those women have become, you know, close colleagues and friends. And as they work towards 
improved community systems, improved enforcement of their laws, and they have questions about how did you do this when this came up? We're always keeping in touch with them and and engaging. And then when we find money, (laughs) then we can uh, create um, uh, concrete, detailed, funded projects that involve, may involve training, may involve, um, uh, you know, just real uh, dedicated time in consultation on legal language and capacity building. So that's a long answer to your question. Does that make sense? Great. Graham, I saw you had a question. I have actually two. One is, uh, with the kind of work that you do, have you yourself ever been threatened by violence? It seems like uh, you'd be on somebody's target list. And mm-hmm. secondly, um, are we ex- experiencing an explosion of violence or are we experiencing uh, a time when we're becoming just more aware and reporting is more prevalent and uh, accessible? Really astute question. Really, um, thank you for that, Graham. You know, I think both things are true. I think violence against gender-based violence, generally gender-based violence against women and girls is on the rise. Um, I think, let me, let me just say a couple things about that. The increase in authoritarian regimes around the world that really rely on uh, patriarchal norms um, is is a, a, a huge kind of... Um, how do I put this? Uh, inspiration for abusers. Maybe that's a good way to put it. It's a it's a it's a it's an inspiration for abusers to continue their grasping to power and control and keeping that power and control, um, you know, over women. Um, I also, though, think Graham that uh, that yes, as systems do become more effective when they have a law, when they, when police really start responding in a way that doesn't, um, increase danger to women, which is a possibility, I believe it or not, or shame or blame them when community women in communities get the message that there's, there are remedies and that they will be enforced. Then they do report violence more than they did before. So we have, you know, for example, some of the most, what I believe, um, it, you know, kind of effective systemic responses to domestic violence and sexual assault are in place where the reporting is very high. So it looks like, you know, there's more violence in Minnesota or Lithuania or, uh, you know, Europe when they first did their kind of, uh, European Union study on the extent of violence in Europe. I think that was 20, oh, it was 2013 or something like that. Late, can you believe it? Really late. Um, They found an alarming level of violence. And one of the reasons I think is women were willing to report it like they weren't, for example, in Tajikistan or uh, another country where they're just Tanzania, where there is no law right now. Yes, Alan. Um, I wonder if, if you uh, happen to know Stana Buhovska. Say that again. Stana Buhovska. I don't. Okay. She's, she works in the uh, United Nations, and she spent a year here. Um, oh, nice. When, when, when uh, she was married to uh, Mihal, her former husband. Yeah. Oh. 
anyway. Good. Yeah. yeah, good to know. I wish I knew I don't. Maggie, would you I have? So I had a question about, you said 40 of you got together. I think you said 20. When, what year did you found? We were founded in 2014. The, the right. name of our organization, again, is Global Rights for right. Women. Right, right. So that's amazingly recently, in my opinion. But you said 40 of you got together. I wonder what was the basis of the collection of 40 people? Was it mostly lawyers? It's just a, a network of friends and acquaintances in Minnesota, in Twin Cities? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Lynn, you want to jump in here and answer that? Lynn Anderson is here with us on the screen, and she's our, our the chair of our board here in Minneapolis, and she's been with us since our founding. Um, Lynn is a lawyer, and I always think it's fun to have more than one person speak, so go for it, Lynn. <laughs> thank you, Cheryl and Maggie. Great question, so thank you uh, very much. And I would tell you that... Uh, uh, personally, I've been inspired by Cheryl's work that I had become aware of, um, and uh, so had a number of others over the years. And Cheryl was with another organization. It's a wonderful organization, uh, but it had a number of different missions. And there was a group of us that wanted to expand uh, this opportunity for global rights for women because we saw such an incredible need. And Cheryl, Cheryl is internationally renowned as a women human rights uh, lawyer. And we wanted to be able to take her 30 years of experience and leverage that globally. So there were 40 of us that I would describe all of us as friends of Cheryl, Maggie. <laughs> that, uh, uh, but this is just a group of ordinary folks from Minneapolis, some lawyers, some business people, some, some from every walk of life. And uh, we just decided we made a, we each made a three-year commitment because all of our funding comes from private donations and family foundations because um, uh, that that's how we're able to do our work. So we each made a three-year commitment. Cheryl was uh, the only employee for a period of time. Very first project was in Turkey where Cheryl had been working for any number of years. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that Starting with Cheryl, we now have, uh, as Margot described, this lean team. We have 12, 12 folks on our staff, but we have this incredible volunteer community of judges, prosecutors, and police who do training with us of their counterparts in other countries. And from that 40, from that 40, uh, 40 Maggie, we now have... Uh, several thousand around the world that uh, support uh, global rights for women, which is how we're able, which is how we're able to do our work. And does that answer your question, Maggie? Thank you. And, you know, I also wanted to comment on Graham's really uh, two, well, two really good questions. One I wanted to comment on in terms of Graham with the pandemic, Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, as I learned from Cheryl. Now, I am not I am a business lawyer. OK, so this is not my area of expertise. So but I listen. 
listen to Cheryl and our team who are these world experts. And during the pandemic, as women were not able to go to a shelter, leave their home, there was a dramatic increase in violence. And But at, at, at Global Rights for Women, part of our mission is to share everything we've learned with the world. And we do that with free webinars that we offer online um, called Valiant Voices. And during the and during the pandemic, we we collected world leaders that shared what they were doing in their countries uh, to try and keep women safer. And in fact, the UN recognized us for our work doing that. So I just wanted to add that on to uh, Cheryl's answer to your question. Graham, and uh, safety is something we worry about with Cheryl and our team every day when they're in these other countries because they are always a target, they're always at risk. And just know that um, um, that's top of mind for us as an organization and the board. Uh, and that's why we're also so honored and privileged to do this work because it is so needed. And that's why we're so grateful to have this opportunity to share it with you today. And Margo, I know you're leaving to go to choir, but I have to say that um, uh, one of the great, one of the great experiences of Global Rights for Women is our community. So we welcome all of you to our Global Rights community now too. Um, and I had a chance to work closely with Margo on our uh, friend and fundraiser in Des Moines and got to know Margo. And so we're just thrilled that Margo is now an ambassador of ours for Global Rights for Women. And we hope, we hope that you will be as well. So I just also wanted to thank you, Margo, for giving us this opportunity to speak with your community today. And, you know, you all can please do go online if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter. We have a quarterly newsletter where you can get you, you can get some really good information about not only what we're doing, but what does the landscape look like right now globally on violence against women and girls and gender based violence. Um, and if you I like I say, I wish. I could put this up on the screen, but our website is just easy to remember, www.globalrightsforwomen.org. Um, or you can Google it or, you know, Google my name, lots of easy ways to get to that. But I was, oh, yes, please. Um, there's a question from the Zoom room. Go ahead. Hi, um, I have many questions. I'll limit them. But first, I wanted to respond to your early question. There are 16 people here in the in the sanctuary. Oh, thank you. Um, so I have read that, um, the statistics of violence don't seem to change much unless underlying societal attitudes begin to change and legal and judicial frameworks are kind of notoriously bad at making that happen. So I'm wondering how, I mean, I guess I understand that that's exactly the work that you do. So I'm wondering how you interface with other organizations that are trying to address the societal issues. Yeah, great, great, great. Thank you. Um, as much as we possibly can. I mean, we just are you know, fundamental to our kind of approach to the work is that there's no one sector, you know, that can do this alone. It, it has to be a whole kind of community message 
that we're not going to tolerate this violence, their community message about just the extent of the harm that it causes, not only women, but their families and the communities and the children. Um, so, you know, wherever we can do that, we are engaging. Uh, for example, with our the report we're doing on the Minneapolis police response to domestic violence up here, we have a whole um, network. Uh, we're working with the shelters, the service providers, the coalition, um, it just to get, number one, an understanding of of the uh, what women are experiencing when they go to the legal system, and then the survivors. It's so important, survivor voices for us of of um, what what it's going to take to have that legal system response be meaningful to them in a way that you know really does protect their safety and accountability. So, you know, while we're using the law and the implementation of the law and refine working to refine those systems, you can't separate yourself from from, you know, other community actors that are working on this. I hope that answered your question. I see another question from the Zoom. Yeah, um I had a question about education. Lynn mentioned I think it was Valiant Voices, which is sounds like one uh, attempt effort to educate the world and just your work i think is educating the world um but your 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 organization is i think cutting to the chase of of human rights the the, the basic issue is is threats to women <clears throat> and uh I, I just wanted to make a comment about education then and then throw it back to you folks about whether there are other ways that you're trying to educate the world to this but when I was in graduate school as a psychologist, and and we looked at the that the at the research on gender differences, mm -hmm. in terms of all the different things that psychologists look at, there's one robust gender difference mm -hmm. that really defines the difference between men and women, and it's aggression. Aggression. And aggression, aggression comes down to the organizational and activational effects of testosterone on the male brain. Mm -hmm. And so, so in, you know, I think when I think about how do we educate uh, mm -hmm. our children as well as ourselves about this, mm -hmm. I, I I think that we 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 have to do better at educating ourselves and our kids uh, about the fact that that is the only thing that science has found that really is a robust difference between men and women. Uh, so I'll, I'll get back to the original question, which is, are there other ways other than Valiant Voices that uh, where you guys and others, you folks and, and others are educating the world about, about this? There's someone else there that wants to speak, or would you like me to take that on while you guys are thinking? Take it on. Take that on. There are okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, um, you know, we're we're always, you know, really um, trying to, as best we can, identify, you know, what is the root cause of what's happening here? What is the root cause? And there, I, I, I'm grateful, you know, that folks like yourselves in, psycho in psychology and the scientific studies are looking at it. We also believe that, um, that because, because men in everywhere I've traveled, certainly, are socialized to identify masculinity with power and control, 
I mean, that's a socialist, and not just men, you know, women are socialized a certain way. Um, men are socialized a certain way. You know, we see these gender norms certainly breaking down here in in uh, our country and in other countries. But in most countries, you know, the, the gender norms are very solid. And we socialize men and boys to identify with power and control. And when when that's so deep and so longstanding and men are given really permission to use violence to to enforce that power and control but we give them permission by not holding them accountable you know that women blame themselves you know mother-in-laws blame women you know it's all the, it's not you know it's a, it's a whole community dynamic but that what i what i really believe is that I want the legal system rather than oppressing so many of our subjugated populations and minority populations, why not use the power of the legal system and the law and the police and the prosecutors to, to disrupt these imbalances? Wouldn't that be something that that our legal system could do to <laughs> create a healthier world? I'm not sure I answered your question. I'm getting kind of lofty here, but any other, any other thoughts on 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 what our speaker there in the room said? I, I, I just would want to emphasize. I, I agree entirely with you about about socialization. There's okay, yeah. no doubt. There's there's Many no forces. doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and we've we've got we've got eons of of human organizations and legal systems that have reinforced the right to aggress against chattel. Right. I mean. Right. This right. is the kind of language that men have used for centuries, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. That that is far and away the overwhelming force that that facilitates this and and enables this kind of behavior. I'm I'm just commenting from the bio psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, absolutely. You know, this is a, this is a reality that men have to be taught about, right? You you have there is a way in which you are different from the women in your world. And and you have to understand that difference and learn from a young age to be responsible for for regulating that. Interesting, interesting. Uh, an, an announcement. Um, uh, one last question, perhaps. Um, I'm wondering about religious differences. I know even within the Christian religions, there's some very patriarchal ones, mm -hmm. some more liberal ones, and certainly. Um, we we hear a lot about uh, Islam through the Taliban, and uh, I don't know how Buddhist countries and so forth. But I'm just curious what you've seen about uh, how religion might overprint the the violence map. Well, I think you know my this is my experience has been that religious institutions also reflect our kind of predominant global patriarchy. Uh, they, you know, they, I, you know, I, I love listening to, oh, there's a couple groups, um, women un living under Muslim laws, uh, Muslim feminists, you know, they, my colleagues that um, are Muslims don't, they're feminists, you know, they, they believe in women's human rights, they believe in women's human right to be free from violence, um, and believe that um, the construct of kind of the way Islam has oppressed women, how Christianity has oppressed women, how 
um, so many institutions have oppressed women. They're, they're constructs. They're not. They're not the core of the doctrine that they believe in. And and I, I'm I'm not a religious scholar, so I'm. This is weak, <laughs> but that that I just listen to. I I just don't. I've never traveled any place where where the there's you know Russian Orthodox or. Islam or Buddhism, where there aren't kind of feminist interpretations of these um, these religions, and that's what I that's what I believe in. <laughs> yeah, Emily, our, our time's up, unfortunately. So, um, okay. thanks, Cheryl. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. for listening. That was Cheryl Thomas presenting Global Rights for Women. Next, we have a preview of next week's All Souls Forum, which is an update on the 2023 legislative session in Kansas presented by the Honorable Marcy Francisco, Kansas State Senator. Paul was the one that suggested when we review this past year's legislature, we could talk about the good, the bad, mm-hmm. and the ugly. And um, during those 88 days, um, some of each um, happened. So um, when I was getting ready for this this week, I um, was thinking, why didn't I tell them that I wasn't going to speak until legislative highlights had been published? So each year, the um, research department publishes legislative highlights. It arrived in my mailbox yesterday. So I tried to go through some notes and say, what have I left out um, that I needed to talk about? But Uh, One of the most interesting things is they also give us some numbers. Um, So their 2023 session at a glance um, states that 326 Senate bills were introduced. Um, 284 of those carry over. So there was no action on those. This is the first year of a two-year biennial. So Uh, legislators who were um, started in the House um, last year will have their second year, so legislation stays alive. 474 bills were introduced in the House. 371 of those were carried over. So the bills that were considered that became law were 65 of those House bills and 33 of the Senate bills. So that's 12.3%, up from 8.9% last year. So um, based on the bills, though, that might not all be good news. So we did spend, the Senate spent 88 days in session and the House spent 84. They took a few more um, days off than we did. Um, But this is kind of an interesting day to be talking about this because... um, July 1st, just yesterday, 77 of those bills became law. 
of those that were passed. The others were um, given a um, statement in the bill that said they um, will become law upon publication in the register. So it's cheaper to just let them become law July 31st. So now we have a lot or um, I guess uh, 98 new laws to think about. One of the bills that did not get a hearing was when I had introduced um, after meeting um, with a disability lawyer who explained to me that he had a number of um, clients who were trying to apply for social security disability because of a medical condition. He um, believes that many of them, if they could get medical care, could go back to work. So um, we introduced a bill that said, um, if it's an attorney on a social security disability case, you can get the hospital records at the um, hospital rate. Um, unfortunately, it didn't get anywhere. So um, those lawyers are often met with um, higher prices than necessary um, to get that information. But let's talk about the bills that did get through. Senate Bill 3, designating a state land fossil. I'm sure we all think that that's important. But other ones um, that were talked about, we raised the minimum age to sell, purchase, and possess tobacco products, um, authorized counties to create code inspection and enforcement funds, and a municipalities fight addiction fund. That will let some of our cities use opioid um, prevention um, dollars. And one of the interesting things was after a lot of back and forth, um, the state did agree to remove fentanyl stri test strips from the state list of illegal drug paraphernalia. So hopefully that will help individuals um, know what they are um, consuming. Um, some fun things were um, the bill to move forward, the Ad Astra Plaza, so the small um, statute of uh, the one on top of the Capitol um, can be viewed on the grounds, and um, permission for a first Kansas colored voluntary infantry regiment mural. We got a new state park, Lehigh State Park um, near Iola. Um, we updated rules on presidential electors and allowed for a presidential preference primary. So add um, caucuses, but this year the state is putting um, out the dollars for that presidential preference primary. There was a law um, allowing a court to block the sale, distribution, spending, or other use of a decedent's assets by a person who has been arrested or charged in their killing. So if you kill your spouse, you won't be able to get their money until after the court action is decided. Um, probably a good thing. But um, we also made it easier for victims of childhood sexual assault to make a case in court by extending the statutes of limitations. We allowed the court to permit a name change during a divorce proceeding um, to a name other than a maiden or former name. 
So you're already in court, you're already making a decision. Um, that seems to make sense. Some of the ones that I was most pleased to see were Senate Bill 49, which will require the light mitigating um, systems on wind turbines if the Federal Aviation um, Administration allows for that, if it's far enough away from, a, from an airport. And this um, hopefully will help um, those um, rural residents, um, maybe some will be in Douglas County shortly, who live near a wind turbine um, system and complain about the constantly blinking red lights. Um, there was a bill that changes how uh, costs associated with transmission of electric power um, are considered, and that should be a reduction in your electricity bill. Um, you might not see it because of the other additions um, to your bill. But um, we also finally made some progress on the state um, water plan funding. Um, and groundwater management requirements. So um, I was particularly um, pleased on both of those. We are now gonna ask groundwater management districts, their taxing authorities, to report to the legislature what they're doing with their funds. For listening to the All Souls Forum. Stay tuned for your jazz afternoon with the Jazz Doc, followed by the Happy Hour with Chef Pat from 3 to 6 p.m. The Heartland Labor Forum will then be presented at 6 p.m. right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. And tune in again next week for another episode of the All Souls Forum. Thanks and have a great day.